Ko tonga riro, te maunga. Ko taupo, te moana. Ko tūwharetoa, te iwi. Ko te hiauhiau, te tangata. Tongariro is the mountain. Taupo is the lake. Tūwharetoa is the tribe. Te hiauhiau is the people. That's right, Mirai, and I have got you covered for the next hour here on Tiahika, the Kopapa Māori show on Radio New Zealand National. Tonight, highlights from Te Tauru Whiriki Te Reo Māori, the Māori Language Commission, and the send-off for Te Reo Māori Language Advocate, Dame Iritana Tawhiwhirangi. Ka hoki, whakamori, ki te hunga, nga rātou, aui poe poe, Nā rātou hoki i noho pūmau ki tō tātou reo. Nā reira, e mihana, tia tātou katoa. Kia ora, Dame Iritana Tāwhiwhirangi. Greeting those who attended her puropuroa ki, or farewell, and she acknowledged the pioneers and advocates of te reo Māori both past and present. What drives a middle-class, educated Pākehā woman to support wahine Māori of a significantly different socio-economic bracket, whom are often viewed disparagingly by society? Well, if you're Celia Lashley, former head of Christchurch Women's Prison, justice. If you're a man who's done prison in this country, it's bad enough. Life it can be hard for you. If you're a woman who's done prison, it's, it's significantly harder. But the thing that I learned at Christchurch Women's, if you're a Māori woman who's done prison in this country, you are the lowest of the low. Like, it, there's just this, there's just this, my heart broke around, you know, around the reality of those women. And you can't stand in that and, and tell yourself that it's not, that it's an okay country, that it's a land of equal opportunity. It's almost like the worthlessness of the, as, as the world looks at them, you know, like it's just... It, it really was heartbreaking. Kia ora, Celia Lashley joins us later on. And we'll also be playing Waiata from the finalists in the Maioha category of the annual APRA Silver Scrolls Music Awards. That's what's coming up in today's Te Ahika. Te Ahika, Radio New Zealand National. First up. Earlier this week, a once-in-a-century event took place with the eruption of Tongariro. Now, I remember the eruption in 1996 of Rua and I was living in the Bay of Plenty at the time. A thin veil of ash coated everything for days, and we were encouraged to wash the car of it every day. So we're talking 1996 here. I was living in Rotorua, studying at Waeriki Polytechnic, and I remember thinking, oh, it's such a stormy day because the sky was dark, dark grey. Nick Mana <laughs> changed to like a dark khaki or dark greenish, yellowish colour. Actually, I remember thinking at the time it must be the Armageddon because right. that's how freaky it right. was. It was like, whoa, what, what's happening here? Yeah, I and remember that too, and everyone was a little bit freaked out because the, the sky the colour sky. changed so quickly. Mm. And then, like you and I, um, we had ash on our windscreens, and then we actually. Jumped in the car, went to Rotorua Central Town, and people were wearing um, tea cloths or tea towels over their mouth and surgical masks. Now that was 16 years ago, and it wouldn't be that much of a stretch for local iwi to have worked out their responses to volcanic eruptions since. 
because Naruhoi, Ruapehu and Tongariro are active volcanoes. So last Monday when Tongariro erupted, Tufaritua Hapu, Ngāti Hikairo, demonstrated how that long-term planning paid off. Can you describe the cultural significance of the maunga of Tongariro to Ngāti Hikairo? Jeez, how long's your, how much tape have uh, you got? Yeah. And, that. and I suppose from a, um, a quick sense, it, it is our tūpuna, who we are, and, and I suppose a reflection of, of the future. It is our place of comfort, our tūranga waiwai, and it surely showed in the response on um, Monday night that um, you know not too many were keen to actually go away from the mountain and that they've actually felt safer there at the foot of the mountain than they um, would going away from it. Well, let's, let's talk about that, um, uh, Bubs, about the, the preparedness of, of the hapu leading up to, after. How were the hapu, how was Ngāti Hikairo um, prepared and what steps were put in place? We kind of wind back a couple of weeks earlier. Um, since the 13th of July, um, the scientists had noticed a fair bit of uh, seismic activity mm-hmm. um, that was kind of centred around Tamari Crater. Um, and that kind of continued for a few days. Um, Ngāti Kaido were informed. We actually partook with Jenny's scientists a few days later mm. to actually go up and, and assist them in the likes of their, um, their monitoring of what was actually happening. So with that information, it yeah. gave us a bit of a, a clearer picture of, of, of the, I suppose, the trend um, that things were kind of building up. So last week on Tuesday, um, we actually called a meeting of all the whanau, um, and we had genius scientists present. Um, police, Department of Conservation and Civil Defence there as well. And um, so the main purpose of the meeting was to inform all the whānau that live um, at the foot of Tongariro um, what has been happening from a scientific point of view mm-hmm. um, and the likes of the seismic activity, um, what may happen in the future. And from there, um, that kind of assured all the whānau um, the need to plan a response if anything happened. Basically that had been happening all last week and up to Sunday I had kind of started putting that all together 8 o'clock Sunday night. Yes. And Nick minute. <laughs> uh, Monday. Monday happened. Were you asleep at the time, Bubs? Uh, like half the country watching the Olympics. So um, <laughs> at home I, I actually live in Tūrangi. Yes. Um, so it's about 20 odd k away. So, yeah, kind of 10 to 12. Um, yeah, what did you... Everything happened. Um, the marae was open, lights on, and whānau started arriving five minutes later. Um, and so there were basically 24 people that were our kind of high, high um, priority yeah. to, yeah. to self-evacuate. Yes, and the, we're, so we're talking, you mentioned before, people with disabilities, animals, yep. and we were talking about Komatua Kuia? Yep, yep, yeah. yep, yep, and and the mobility that, yep. um, uh, issues and that. And this is all part of being prepared and that yep. plan that you had in place. You identified 107 residents, yep. all their contact details. Yep. It worked. Oh, it's um, <laughs> everybody, um, you know, uh, 
later on Monday night, um, they just said, you know, debrief. Went to plan, and that, yep. and, um, you know, it, it, and once we kind of sit down and go through the the bigger debrief, so we'll kind of debrief each daily event. Um, we will certainly sit down and um, and debrief the. Um, uh, the whole event yes. probably after a week or so, mm-hmm. and that and and there is room for improvement, and and we can certainly critique and improve um, on the on the foundation of what we've put together anyway, and that. So, Bubs, what now for the hapu? I understand that people are obviously, um, you know, as a result of the ash, um, you know, on homes and on cars and and on properties. Is, is it just a clean up now? Yeah. So. Everyone's still in a, um, I suppose, a high level of alertness and that and the likes of um, if something um, does happen uh, in, the, in the near future. But um, basically it's um, in that recovery phase of yeah. um, we're um, trying to go through and making sure that everyone is comfortable and that um, issues and the likes of um, ash on the house and get the roofs swept off and that um, issues and the likes of uh, water supply to ensure that you know there was no contamination of water supplies. So for um, Ngāti Hikairo and other hapu in the Tūwhare Toa iwi, you know, what is it like living day to day, living your lives next to two, basically, if we can call them, living maunga? Like, is it just a matter of, is it like, do you feel like it's a ticking time bomb in terms of when the next eruption will happen? Is it scary? Is it... Um. Certainly from so others and other agencies and an event like this, they kind of put it in their civil defence hazard management um, category. Um, for us, it's it's a living, breathing, <laughs> and, and of course now speaking, um, uh, two point of ours. And to know everybody is quite comfortable mm-hmm. um, living there. Um, our traditional... History um, talks a lot about these events happening and that, and, and you know, it's just, I suppose, a privilege to actually live there and that, and, and that. And um, yeah, I don't think um, going away, or we got nowhere else to go anyway, <laughs> that's not an option. Do you see it as a tohu, Bubs? Um, You've yeah. got the, the corridor about, um, you know, there's um, Tufari Tor has um, lost. Yep. To meet yep. the who yep. passed away um, yep. a, um, a few weeks ago, uh, there's the the corridor that you know hitohu tera na te tupuna tongariro. Do you? Um, definitely. And so, from uh, I suppose from a Māori perspective, yes. we look at um, looking through our lens of mm. uh, the world. Um, mm. It is a lot more holistic, I suppose, which taken a lot of our intangible values that we have for um, our maunga, and certainly in the likes of Atohu. And, and so, you know, we're, I suppose, Tongariro has spoken, um, and it's up to us over the next few days, weeks, and that to actually interpret uh, mm. what he's actually telling us. Nā reira, e te araki atimi te hiuhiu, me tō whānau whānui ki te rohe o tūwharetoa, tēnei rā te mihi ki a koutou katoa. Kia ora, Bub Smith, nor Tufaritua, Nati Hikairo. Now, our colleague at Our Changing World, Alison Balance, interviewed Bubs in April this year about the fuel, Blue Duck. And if you'd like to listen to that, you can do so at radionz.co.nz. Uh, go to the search bar and type in Our Changing World. It aired 
on the 19th of April. This year, the finalists in the APRA Maioha Award recognising excellence in te reo Māori and Waiata are I Am A Child, written and performed by Ria Hall. That's what we can just hear now. Awanui Reader with Matsuhia Po, written by Awanui Reader, David Atai and Scotty Morrison, and Ponamu, written by Sydney Diamond, Josh Fountain and Amorangi Winitana, performed by Amorangi, featuring Sid Diamond. We'll find out who won the award on the 13th of September when it's announced at the APRA Silver Scroll Awards at the Auckland Town Hall. The next night in Hastings at the annual Waiata Māori Music Awards, Rhea Hall and Awanui Reader will then perform alongside Tiki Tāne as this year's featured guests. The best of the best in Māori music. We'll update you in upcoming Te Ahika. You're listening to The Sound of Te Ahika with Justine Murray and Mariah Rakuraku. She's your boy, Taina. Celia Lashley has been working with Wahine Māori for years. There was a stint heading Christchurch Women's Prison, but more latterly, it's her advocacy work. And tied up in her experiences of advocacy, she has encountered a very strong culture of blame. Why is it that we have such a strong blame culture? Why is it that all the professionals that can be involved in, in a situation with a perpetrator and a victim, why is it always about the blame? My um, my philosophical answer to that is that we are a country that needs to grow up. We sit um, at the bottom of the world and we are relatively spoiled. Um, and if I think about you know my childhood and and how New Zealand was, we're like we, we have the, the biggest damage that is done to New Zealand is that we are constantly visited by overseas people who tell us how gorgeous we are. You know, we're being wooed all the time. It's a paradise. We live in a paradise. And we believe them. And so a mythology exists about the paradise. And and yet, you put next to it, we've got the second to highest imprisonment rate in the world. We've got child abuse stats through the roof. We've got suicide stats through the roof. And and so we're kind of like the kid. The, the analogy that I use all the time now, because it encapsulates my image, I often have to think in pictures, is we're like a 15-year-old. And we, we've done a bit of growing up, and, and particularly in the last 20 years, we've started to play with the big boys. We've started to play with, the, you know, the States and China, and we fancy ourselves in that world thing because they've told us how good we are, and we've produced, you know, the World All Blacks and we've taken you know, the World Cup. And so we're kind of at that stage of, look at us. We might be a little country, but we punch above our weight. <laughs> we constantly hear that. And then... So we're like the 15-year-old, and we've got we've got the beginnings of adulthood starting... And so we ta- we ask our dad, you know, can I take the car? Can I have the car to go to the party? And um, no, you're not grown up enough. Yes, I am. And we take the car and we crash it. And then we come home, we go to our room and we leave dad to fix the mess. So we're like the, we're like the as a country, I think, we're like the 15-year-old who says, look how grown up I am. <laughs> but we haven't come through the rough stuff. And, to, and so we're not, we don't want to have the conversation about... Um, about suicide and abuse because it would require us to do something differently. And and it's there's there's two parts of it. One are there people who turn their head away, but the part that I'm energized about is that I think I think the average New Zealander, the average middle class New Zealander, an upper middle class New Zealander who's actually got the time to even think about life, is starting to realise we've got a problem. And the and the joy for me is that it's in the recognition that we have a problem that we may find a solution. Yeah, because part of that is that the people who aren't living that myth are actually living the reality. Yes, they are. And and so many people, the thing that we 
um, and it's my group that I'm most passionate about and my group, as I see it, white middle class New Zealanders, we're the ones that have to... Um, we're, we, are, we need to lead the charge because we have the capacity um, to even begin to wonder what life's about. So most of the people that I'm working with inside at-risk families... They don't have, you know, she hasn't got the energy to think about no, the, the worldview. No, it's just survival. It's survival. And mm. and they talk about, you know, which of the six things that I'm supposed to have done today, you know, will I have, what's the noisiest thing today? I've got, have I got to go to Wins or have I got to go to the probation officer or do I have to um, do something about paying that court fine? You know, like that sort of level. So she gets up and, and I've got my hand, you know, an inch away from my nose. What What issue, what's the loudest and what do I deal with today? Half the time she hasn't got the energy, so she just climbs back into bed because actually all of them are too hard. So, it, you know, we can lament and, and blame her, which we do very well, and I talk about her because it's my focus is the woman, but it's that she can't. But I can. You see, I, my life is such that I've got the capacity to think about the meaning of life, and I've got the energy and the time and the resources. And, and, and what I want people to understand is that resource issue, because um, I've got two grandsons, and in contrast to some of the little fellas I've seen, Inside schools, I can see the difference of the resources that are sitting at the hands of my grandsons who are four and two. And and we, the middle classes, have to own up to that and have responsibility that sits with that. You know, there are some that argue, Celia, that the actual history upon which this country is is formed has assisted that. Has assisted from the very outset. The very and until we start acknowledging that, our colonial history... Then we can start acknowledging the more things that are more present. Yeah, I, and I'm I'm very firmly of that view. I believe that people will say, if I use the analogy of um, of a woman with um, and many women I've met have a sexual abuse history, and women with sexual abuse histories are often told by those around them, well, that was then and this is now. But the issue for me is that her life, until she in- integrates the sexual abuse history, the reality of it, and all of the associated issues into her current world. She will be forever hampered by her history, so it's like a jigsaw, and um, and and what happens is that part of a woman, if we talk about a woman with a sexual abuse history, the jigsaw contains the reality that she was sexually abused, and that piece of jigsaw sits up and trips her, you know, and she'll keep catching her foot on it. If she deals with it, she doesn't take away that she was a sexual abuse victim. It lies down and it becomes part of the tapestry. And I would use the same analogy for our history in this country that that we the the push at the moment because it makes us all feel uncomfortable is um oh well that was then, you know, and we need to understand that, you know, this is now and this is the modern world. But the sadness for me is that um if we were to own fully own our colonial history, including the um the reality that, you know, that from the beginning it was unbalanced and the resources issue was there. Um, there's a richness that would come add to our life if we would bring that in instead of people want to push it away because they have a sense that it's a never-ending negativity, but actually it's not. Um, it's uh, it's part of who we are, so we need to name what is, and it's what's hampering us. So actually. why do you think we don't own it? Makes us feel uncomfortable, makes us... Um, look at ourselves, and we're not good at looking at ourselves. Um, there's a, there's a, 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 when you grow up, in my view, my personal view, when you grow up as a white middle-class New Zealander, um, you, you have at your fingertips a whole range of resources. But, but we carry a bias that I don't think we know we have. 
you know, like it's invisible because we're made right so often, you know, and, and everything around us has reinforced that we're right. And it's only when you, you know, get a look in the mirror, trust yourself enough to look in the mirror that you can see that. And it, and and it's uncomfortable. I mean, there's some pretty horrific things happened in, you know, what little, um, what the study I did. And, and and there are moments of, you know, grave injustice. And, and it's not possible to, I don't believe it's possible to put them under the carpet. It just, because the poison just seeps out again. And it's, and it's, and if we want any, um, I know that people struggle. You know, I know amongst the people I move amongst who, who fit the same class as me that there's a, a sense of when, you, when are they going to stop, you know. Blaming us. L lamenting, you know, and blaming us. Yeah, when are they going to stop being the victims in this and stand up? But the the thing that we don't get is that, um, you see, it's not about, I'm not about to apologise for who I am. You know, white middle class, um, single sex, Catholic school, girl educated, you know, you know. I mean, I am who I am. So it's not about that I have to tug my forelock and say, gee, I'm sorry that my skin's white and that I have the ancestry I do. I'm not sorry. I do carry responsibility that my way isn't the only way. That's the issue for me. That And, and that there's a beauty. And I'm very passionate about that we can talk about multicultural. But for me, um, my passion and my belief is that we have to be bicultural before we're multicultural. And so... Um, you know, it is the basic, you know, I have no issue at all, despite being Irish background and single-sex Catholic girl educated, Catholic girl school. Um, I have no issue around tangata whenua and, you know, the the reality of the world. And and for me, it doesn't it doesn't in any way um, threaten me, but I, I watch how it does threaten some. I think they think it's an endless trough somehow, or they, that we'll never get to the end of it. But it's it's the heartbreak that I see that, that gets... that. You know, there's no denying that the thing I saw as a manager of Christchurch Women's, if you're a man who's done prison in this country, it's bad enough. Life it can be hard for you. If you're a woman who's done prison, it's it's significantly harder. But the thing that I learned at Christchurch Women's, if you're a Maori woman who's done prison in this country, you are the lowest of the low. Like, it, there's just this... There's just this... My heart broke around, you know around the reality of those women. And you can't stand in that and, and tell yourself that it's not, that it's an okay country, that it's a land of equal opportunity. Not when you see the level of oh, almost generational abuse um, and and just that, I don't know, the, the, it's almost like the worthlessness of the, as, as the world looks at them. You know, like it's just, it, it really was heartbreaking for me. Yeah, imagine having to confront that every day you walk yeah, out your door. yeah. And and people do, and mm. and and people talk about you know the I mean and I've watched it in the faces of bureaucrats you know the, the, some I've watched um, I've watched the sneers I've watched the you know I've I've sat in cafes with women from prison uh, you know after they've been released and um, and watched the eyes come around and and almost there's a look sometimes of there used to be this look of why would you be with a woman like that you know that as they t try to decide who I am. And then, you know... And what your relationship is. Yes. And and so it's that look in the eye. And and, and the kids, the, you know, the, when you talk to kids, they will often identify it too, that there's that dismissive look, just this absolute, you're the, you're the dirt under the sole of my shoe. And and it's hard for me to believe that, or no, it's not hard to believe, it's hard to accept that that can happen in our country, that, that this high level of judgment. I remember once being in an office in a... Work an income office where a, ex, a recently released inmate was um, woman was was being interviewed, and I went with her, and I was more affronted by the fact that I was with her, 
And they still did it. And the woman threw the pamphlet across and said to her, you want to fill this in? And I just reached across and picked it up and threw it back and said, you might want to try that again. See, they wouldn't do it to me. No, they wouldn't. You see, that's the issue so for you me. So you've not, you haven't had that experience. No, yeah, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't. No. They wouldn't. And you know, there'd be an acceptance of, but it's just okay to do it. And and, and uh, you know, I mean, I've had moments of extreme anger about on the behalf of individual women. How dare you? How dare you categorise in that regard? You have no idea what this woman, this life, this woman. I think the ones that don't care have hardened themselves to it because it's too, what happens. I think to human beings is it's too big an issue. So what we do is we break it off and we make it. I think that's where the blame comes in. As long as I can tell them that it's their fault, if they, you know, if they just got themselves sorted, if they, you know, they're in this situation because they've chosen to be in it, it's their fault. And it's just, it's just so far from the reality. Yeah, that's something you hear all the time, isn't it? Mm. That, um, well, you know, I know someone who was in exactly the same situation and they rose above it. Yes, I love that description, you know, that um, how was it? Well, the, you know, how was it that one made it and one didn't? And the answer is that if you track those kids, I think you'll find that, that somewhere in the life of the one who did make it... There's been some kind of intervention, one, one, one person. One person. And it might have only been a five-minute conversation. But in that moment, the child was seen and heard and and got a sense that they were not invisible. And so it's, you know, I, I think that statement about, oh, well, others make it, is like, it, again, it, it puts it in the basket where it means I don't have to do anything. That's the issue that I think we constantly go to. I need to find an explanation that um, that means I don't have to do anything. That's what we want. And it's my, only my job at the end of the day. Yeah. I'm only enforcing what I'm being told to do because oh. it's my job. Yes. We could go a long way down that track in terms of what I've seen. Yeah. So with the women that you do work with, what are some of these stories and how are they, how are they going? Well, <laughs> I mean, there's been, um, in some of the recent work I've done, there's been, there's some, you know, miraculous stuff really. And, and, I think I mean, it's the stuff I miss of from Christchurch Women's is the there's a realness about their lives that I have the most amazing admiration for and humility about that that um, there's this, often this extraordinary sense of humour despite the most you know horrendous. horrific circumstances and and I just you know some of the conversations I've had recently one woman um, I said to her oh so um, so <laughs> so did you do you have um a sif Sif's involved, you know, with your kids? Oh, yeah, she said they're involved a bit. She said they used to be involved quite a lot, um, but not so much now, she said. But um, they used to be involved because we'd have a party every night, and um, and and um, they weren't that keen on that. And I said, no, I don't suppose they were, really. And <laughs> she said, um, um, but, but what they don't understand is she said, we're a whole lot better now. We only have a party one night a week. I'm like, oh, great, great, good, great. But then, so, you know, there's that whole... And and I mean, look at look at but that. But there is a shift. Yeah, yeah but look at shift. yeah, and look and look at the way you know that that still allows you the the the, the right wing view of oh look at her she's hopeless you know blah blah blah. You can still bring that in. There's a woman who's most interested in when they can party, and then she began to talk and um and in a five minute conversation with me with a group of other women there were three or four other women in this setting, and she was more than happy to talk. She told me of um her. She, I think she had six or seven children. The oldest girl had just been released from prison and had just arrived home. The 13-year-old or 14-year-old had been in 35 foster homes and had just been delivered home. And she meant, and there was at least two other factors that were in there. 
And so in a, in a minute, you get a sense of just, I mean, you know, a 14-year-old kid that's been in 35 foster homes, you know, what would what would be in that package, you know? And and, and yes, we, the thing that for me is we can go down the track of um, the mother's played a part in this family having this high level of chaos, which is a word I prefer to dysfunction, and and I'm and you know we can we can tell ourselves that if she'd stopped partying quite so often and if they'd focused a bit more some of the stuff mightn't have happened. The issue for me then is though that let's go back a generation and what did she come out of and and what um, let's get the story and let's not worry about the blame. Let's what is it we can do? She's got this extraordinary spirit and if I instead of making it a fight with her. Why don't we make it a tell me what your world looks like and then and then I let's talk about what choices you have within that framework. You know what though, Celia, the media headline is Mother Parties Every Night. Yeah. Yeah. So is the media complicit in contributing oh, to with, all of the blame culture? Without and, doubt. Yeah. Even the words that they use. So um I mean the media one of the core issues for me is that that the media wants the the media is serving the people instead of instead of provoking people. So if we talk about that label of BJ Kuderiki, you know New Zealand's youngest killer, and he was paraded constantly as New Zealand's youngest killer. He wasn't a killer. He was convicted of playing a part in the manslaughter. You know, totally different issue. Because some people just say he was he still killed someone he, he was didn't, still there when he didn't kill someone the guy who killed him was the guy who picked up the hammer or the axe or whatever it was and hit michael choi if you if we play with that yes yes on the surface we can we can say those words fit if we stretch it far enough but the difference between the headline new zealand's youngest killer and a boy um a boy takes part or you know acts as lookout at a manslaughter at a when a, a pizza man is attacked. They're two different things, but the media, it's easier to roll off the tongue. It's a lovely phrase, New Zealand's youngest killer. It's a lovely, easy, compact phrase. If we put the wider issue in, we have to think about um, we have to think about a whole range of issues, not least that, um, as I understand it, BJ had been under the care of Child Youth and Family who had failed to pick him up in the days preceding him being part of that gang. So we can oh, wander off down that track as well. But the issue for me is that what the media do is look for the banner headline and the thing that rolls neatly in the auto cues on the screen or in the headline of the newspaper. And so the problem that's happened is that the media are only doing that because the public have told them in indirect ways that they want a simple issue. They you know so it's a it's a symbiotic relationship. The media feed us simple issues because we like simple issues as opposed to let's generate some discussion. We don't like discussion. We don't like ambivalence. We want to be able to say he was he was there. He killed him, um, and let's talk about how young he is. You know, like it's it's tick the box stuff. And the uh, the big issue for me is that this country will not seemingly is unable to hold itself in the place of socioeconomic issues versus Maori. You know, that's that's my core issue. Is that what we do all the time? Is we make it a Maori issue when it's a socioeconomic issue? And we blur them, and we have no sense in my mind of the different equation that enters the picture when the skin is brown i mean i'm I struggle so often to have conversations with people around you know it people really can't get to the idea of it socioeconomic because I think that's where the land of equal opportunity hamstrings us that there you know there's a real belief that this country is one that if you just work hard, you can make you it. can make it socioeconomic issue of um 
of what it is to be raised, like my grandsons are in a house where both parents are in their thirties, uh, in their thirties when they had them, both have degrees, um, both have um, an awareness of the world. That means that these children are being nurtured, and there are books, and there are, you know, there's a conscious level of parenting, which is largely enforced by a by a physical resource. They have the money for a physical presence. Uh, yeah, yes, and and that they can. For example, that they have a nana that takes one day a week, and that they have that they are able to pick jobs that you know mean they can they're co-parenting, all that sort of stuff. Now compare that with with um, you know some of the women that I met last year working in South Auckland who, you know, it's just a struggle. Yeah, like if you're being struggle. paid, you know, thirteen dollars an hour and or existing on a benefit, you know, it's it's just not true that if you just work hard, life will be easier. You know, so they. When you're worried about whether you've got enough money to buy a loaf of bread and how far you can make the loaf of bread stretch, it it just starts you off. And it's not about that they're Māori. It's about, you know, the economic resource, that the capacity and at their at their fingertips. And it just so happens that Māori populate that yeah. population. Yes, but they then that they populate that population because of the history that we carry, because of the resourcing issue from the beginning, because of the um, land grabs and the guardedness of you know of of the, of the white population protecting the resource. I mean, you know, the, you, you have to be the I thing. Mean, you have to be stupid not to understand that. But the thing that I actually get is that the average. I don't think the average New Zealander knows, or in a way, you know, like well. I mean, I'm sure from your perspective, you think how could they not know? But if you came through a system at school that didn't talk about New Zealand history, you know, there's a large level of um, ignorance around. So what you know, what did happen? Yeah, but I'm not excusing it. I'm just you know, but that, but I think it's out there. I mean, I get surprised at what you still get surprised. I still get surprised at the level of ignorance. People, yes, at how little people know, and and the dismissiveness. I think it, I think what comes in very quickly is the dismissiveness of um. Oh, don't tell me about that because then I have to do something about it. This is now. That was then. When are they going to stop about these grievances? You know, <laughs> when are they going to get over themselves? Oh, I don't know. Might be when. We lift our hands off the purse strings that we've got so tightly wound around them. Yeah. So you must find that you you're able to move amongst class. Yes, very much. Mm. Yeah, um, very lucky now in that in that I kind of have a um, uh, credibility. I suppose that means that um, uh, that I can get to the people I want to get to. But having said that, you know, even this project I did last year reminded me. Um, like it's so easy after a while um, to you you kind of academically glaze over like you you know like all human beings you you I mean there was some stuff I knew by working at Christchurch Women's and I was in touch with the lives of those women and reminded daily about that reality and that keeps you honest and then you move into a field where if you if you're not careful and this I see this happen to a lot of people that you begin people begin to believe their own publicity and so they think they're pretty cool and so then they begin to develop the academic stuff and 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 last year I went back and and I was only it was only through the grace of an extremely effective social worker in schools that I got into the kitchens of some of the women um and once I'm in, um, you know, I have credibility around the fact that I managed a woman's prison. That often, it's often someone knows somebody, so that you know that gets me in. Um, but um, so I'm lucky. But but in those moments, I I was reminded yet again that it's so easy to slip away from the reality of of that life. You you gloss it over. You you know, like I learned again and again last year about um, about how hard her life is. 
and her generally. I learnt about um, that we have this idea that, you know, for example, we have this idea that we just need to get mothers more involved. Send them on a parenting course. Yeah, send them on a parenting course would be nice. And also um, we need to link them to the school more and um, have them involved in the school. And I realised after I was met some of the mothers that actually that's a nice idea, but she brings the child to school and drops him or her at the gate and breathes a sigh of relief that for the next five hours you've got him. And her life is such that, and while she's while the kid is at school, she goes to have that wins interview or she goes to have the, um, you know, goes to the court or reports to the probation office or does whatever, you know. And it's 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 stuff like um, police sitting at the end of school driveways and ticketing unwarranted cars. Um, there were some interactions from some of the agencies that left me breathless in terms of, if, if they tried that with me, the agency, whatever they were, that I'd, you know, tell them to take a running jump, basically. So like, if they went and sat at the end of maybe King's College in Otahuhu in Auckland to check to see that all the cars are warranted and registered, mm. it would never happen. No, it would never happen. But more than that, you see, I reckon, I mean, anyone listening to this might be wanting to test it, but I reckon if, if I got pulled over um, driving around Wellington with my car and I hadn't a current warrant, let's say, to, you know, and, and I'd say to the policeman, oh, sorry, you know, I forgot, or I've got it booked in next Tuesday. He'd say, okay, make sure you do, and off I'd go. These people don't get that. They get the $400 fine, you know, so, and then instantly they're on the backward, <laughs> instantly they're on the back foot. So so there's all of that. There's, there's lay, the layers of, of powerlessness. Um, one man described to me uh, going, walking his, he walked his kids to school every day. This guy was just a hero in my view. Three children, triplet girls and a, and a boy under the age of seven, walked his kids 35 minutes to school every morning and walked them home 35 minutes every afternoon. In between, went down to a local office of an agency and um, sat and waited and waited and waited and at half past two had to say to them, I can't wait any longer, I've got to get back to the school to pick up my kids. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't sit in an agency from half past nine till half past two. I'd, I'd be at the desk within a couple of hours saying, listen... Where's your manager? Because I need to see somebody. But he has no sense of the power. He doesn't want to upset them. And anyway, he would get a negative response. So, you know, I mean, that's, for me, there was there's just layers of it. And it's all based around socioeconomic. But layered across, the sad thing that does make me sad, is layered across the socioeconomic is the, is the race judgment that, that it comes in of, I don't need to be disrespectful to, you know, to you because you're just one of them. Like I saw some appalling levels of abuse of of agencies and and how people are treated, you know, just yeah, mind-bogglingly and inappropriately, really. Kia ora, Celia Lashley. Now you can always re-listen to our cordial at our webpage radioNZ.co.nz forward slash Te Ahika. And you can email us as well, Te Ahika at radioNZ.co.nz. We love hearing from you. I'm Maria Rakraku. And I'm Justine Murray, and this is Te Ahika. There were two themes running parallel with each other at the recent hui put on by Te Tarifiri Te Reo Māori, the Māori Language Commission. The first was acknowledging 25 years since the establishment of the Māori Language Act. And the second was the Poroporaki for retiring Māori Language Commissioners Rua Kirihond and Dame Iritana Tawhifirangi. And many people came to acknowledge her work during the Fakatai the proceedings at the event because Eritana is acknowledged as one of the cornerstones of 
Te Reo Māori. That's due to her championing Te Reo Māori language learning program, Te Atarangi, in the early childcare centres immersed in Te Reo Māori, the Kohanga Reo movement. She wears many portai hats as a member of the Māori Women's Golf Association, the Māori Women's Welfare League. And with that level of involvement in the Māori community, inevitably comes the awards and the accolades. Noreira, eh, ko te wā i nāianei, ka karangatia, eh, inei tokorua, kuaroa, MC of the event, Awanui Arangi Black, he is also a Māori language commissioner, then presents Ritana with a muka cloak created by Kohai Grace. No te wā. Nā ko Kohai Grace tēnei, te taonga nei he kahu muka, Eritana now thinks those people who continuously work to revitalise te reo rangatira, the Māori language. She also acknowledges that today marks the anniversary day since the Māori Language Act was established 25 years ago. In 2008, Dame Eritana Tafifirangi received Te Tohu Moe Tiaraki Nui Dame Tia Tairangi Te Wakatoi Exemplary Award for her contribution to Te Reo Māori. I spoke to her then, and I asked her first up how she felt about receiving such an award. Well, um, you know, how would anyone feel that that uh, uh, is approached? Um, very humbling and... Uh, um, and I guess straight away my mind went to, why, why is any one single person yeah. chosen when, there's, when what you've done has really been the result of, of thousands of our people rowing the waka? In this case, I'm talking about Kohangareo. I've had a um, privileged um, journey in my life. Um, and the privilege began, as I've so often stated, began from my own tribal area, Ngāti Pro, where I had the good fortune, people my age had the singular good fortune of being nurtured and reared in what I call the university of my tribe. Those were the people who nurtured me, who guided me, who monitored me, who corrected me, who, in a way that meant that they really wanted you to do the best you could. And, and that best could only be achieved by the 
learnings that one got from being in your tribal area. I remember, you know, when I first came to Wellington, I was invited to speak at the Teachers College, and the subject was um, Maori, Maori teachings. That's right, Maori teachings, or something along those lines. I wanted to know for me to, in, to in, interpret Maori teaching. And I, I've always been a funny sort of person. I, I, if people ask me to do something, I say yes, only because I feel, you know, if they've asked you, you should. But in saying yes, I'm never ever sure what I'm saying yes to. <laughs> it's <laughs> long to laughter. Yeah. And so I just say, yes, I'll come in one day. And then on my way up, and I thought, no, the Maori teachings. Now, you know, uh, one of my weaknesses, perhaps, although I'm classified as a strength, I've never asked, you know, Maori teachings. I haven't sat down and, and, and agonized over, now, what does it mean, and tried to write it down, all the rest of it. In actual fact, I've actually flown by the seat of my pants, you know. Um, but you can do that. You can do that when you've grown up in an environment that actually prepares you. Mm. So when I got up to my teachings and, uh, and I said, well, actually, I was never taught. My people didn't teach me. Um, I learned from what they expected. And uh, someone said to me in the room, well, what, how, what about a hangi? You know, who taught you to... Do you know how to make a hangi? I said, yes. Well, who taught you? I said, well, I wasn't taught. But when you've grown up as a kid and you see the men and you see them digging the hole and the tools they use and the, and the, and the water and the rocks and the fire and, and you see that time and time and time again, that's a learning exercise. Mm. And so in your, in your career, mm-hmm. um, what have been some of the, some of the milestones? Well, (laughs) the first milestone was uh, I didn't want to be a teacher or a nurse. (laughs) In in those days, and I was, I went, I came to Hukarere in 1943, and had the privilege of being there for four years. Though I hated every year of it. Oh. I I did. I I just could not. I could not um, take to it. Um, And I guess uh, the reason for that is I had a very open, free. Ranging education in Hex Bay. We climbed the hills. We went on the rocks. We rode our horses bareback. We swam. And, Beautiful. And so I had an uninhibited childhood. And and then I was trundled off to um, Hukarere. And I was stunned at the regimentation. And in those days, you had two choices if you were a girl: teaching or nursing. Oh, that was it. Well, I didn't want any of them, but I particularly didn't want nursing, which my father wanted me to follow because he, you know, he just wanted me to be a nurse because he had a, nef- a niece who was a wonderful nurse. Well, uh, I didn't want that, so the other option was teaching, and uh, so I came uh, to the only op- other option um, offering. I have no regrets now, uh, but at the time it wasn't a choice. It was a, it wasn't, it was a no option thing. So I came here, then I went back to Waimatatini, and I guess uh, I went back to relieve that wonderful woman that uh, is, is, you know, very noted now, Sylvia Ashton Warner, who wrote The Spinster, and uh, absolutely brilliant woman. And I think it was just an absolute stroke of, stroke of luck that I was asked to relieve her when she was not feeling very well. Because so I went into a classroom that was an eye-opener. Yeah. In the way that those children just enjoyed learning, uh, in in her she had percussion bands with stones and 
and cigarette things and you know and how she she tailored her uh, relationship with those children and that community based on what was important for them it's interesting now many many years later we're all talking about going back to our communities and engaging with them and calling on the skills there mm. to underpin the professionals Kia ora, Dame Iritana Tafifirangi Hemihi Nui Tene Kia Kwe. That kōrero was recorded in 2008 at the Te Wakatoi Awards, and earlier in that piece, the Māori Language Commission farewelled retiring commissioners Dame Iritana and Rua Kire Hond. And congratulations to the new commissioners, Dr. Poya Rewi and Dr. Katsarina Edmonds. Ane, Bob Smith are nor with this week's Fagatoki. Kotonga de los Tamanga, Kotopo, Timoana, Kotufarato, Tiwi, Kotehau, Tangata. Tonga de los the mountain, Topo is the lake, Tufarato is the Iwi, Tehau is the man. Um, so, Kotonga de los Tamanga, it is about the physical things of our culture. So, um, yes, it is about the mountain, the trees, the birds. Kotopo to Moana, yes, it is the water, and but it also represents those intangible things like our real, our waiata, our history, um, so that spiritual side, so those things that you can't kind of grasp and put a hand to. Kotufarato Iwi, it's the people and the relationship that they have with those things and the likes of uh, the physical and the spiritual or, or the tangible and the intangible. It sounds kind of cheesy, but imagine finding love while you're on the love tour. No, cut it out. No, you cut it out. You just cut it out. It's amazing. <laughs> That's how husband and wife team Kirsten Thirito and James Illingworth hooked up. And you'll hear all about it next week and speaking of love, I'm with Icy and John Bristow of Fidinaki talking me through their own love story. It's lovely. All coming up next week. Hemihi tēnā ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Atu i tēnā, hemihi anō ki ngā kai whakamahia i ngā rorohiko. Hoki mai, hei tērā rā tapu, mai te whanau atia hika ki a tātou katoa. Mauri ora. <laughs>